Open our Bibles again to 1 Kings chapter 8. This is the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. Thank you, Owen, for reading that for us a little bit earlier. And it'll be helpful to have it. It's such a big passage. It'll be helpful to have it open in front of you so that I can just point to sections of it as we go through. Well, there are a few things that create a true nosiness in us as much as a new neighbor moving into our street. We all want to know what kind of person is moving in, don't we? I mean, the optimists among us are really hopeful that our new neighbor will be our new bestie. Well, the pessimists just want to find out if our new neighbor's previous address was somewhere in the underworld. Okay? Now, all of that gets blinds twitching and tongues wagging. You've all done it, of course. Now, I want to say, it actually doesn't take long to find out what kind of person is is moving in, what kind of person is about to become our neighbor. I think all you've got to do is do these two things. First of all, look at the kind of stuff they're carrying into their house and watch what happens they move in. If they come in carrying, or even the Pickfords guys come in carrying, the 63-volume set of Spurgeon Sermon, you can be sure they're going to be a bestie. If they're carrying cannabis plants and some high-powered lamps, you know you're in trouble, okay? Now, look at what they're carrying, watch what happens when they move in. It's a no-brainer. I want to say those same principles are used, useful to us as we look through the window the Bible provides on the day God moved into his new building, Jerusalem, in 1 Kings 8. It's the temple that Solomon built, the temple that we've looked at in recent weeks. Now these events of 1 Kings 8 show curious neighbors back then and each of us here today what kind of person is moving in. And if you're taking notes, there are two simple points based around two simple questions that are actually quite commonly useful as you read any passage of scripture. One, what does this passage tell us about God? And two, what does this passage tell us about us? So first of all, what does this passage tell us about God? Well, like I said, you can tell a lot about a new neighbor by asking what kind of things are they carrying into this new place? And in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 8, they are carrying in the ark, the ark of the covenant. It is the center of attention. Even in those few verses, it's mentioned eight times, which should, well, make us concentrate on it. I mean, more important than the question in this dedication celebration, more important than the question who was there or how many sacrifices were offered is the question, what is the ark and what's inside? This is God's moving in day. Someone might ask, well, is God in the box? No, verse nine, look with me, tells us exactly what's in the box. Nothing except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb. Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai, okay? So this is, the, these stone tablets are essentially the Ten Commandments, the handwritten transcript of the terms and conditions of what verse 9 and verse 21 call the covenant of the Lord. The covenant of the Lord. And this box and these tablets contained within represented this covenant or promise, if you like, that God made to his people on that day to be their God. 
And to God's people, that ark then represented their promise back to God to be his alone. It's, it sounds a little bit like wedding vows, doesn't it? I think that's what the covenant was like in some ways. The ark in one sense was like a wedding ring. It reminded God's people that they were uniquely God's. It reminded them that God, even in his omniscience, had said to them, only you have I known. Of all the nations, only you have I known. So as this ark comes in, nosy neighbors should see that God is a promise-keeping God. And that's especially impressive given that Israel have throughout their history from that point when they left Sinai to this point where they are dedicating the temple a serious high point in the life of Israel. That they have cheated on this covenant. Cheated on God with the idols of their day and not just once. So how can they possess process the ark in with such confidence that God won't disregard them or divorce them? How can they make such a big deal of this covenant that they never in a million years could keep? Well, because the covenant words of God contained in the ark had a covering, a lid, a lid that was called the mercy seat. Actually, it was quite a messy lid. Because all that gold that had encased this wonderful little box was covered in gore, the blood of sacrifice. You see, the lid of this box was an altar, and on it, the blood of atonement was splattered. And God had said that he accepted the sacrifice as an atonement for the waywardness of the sins of his people, so that when they offered the sacrifice, he gave them mercy. That's why the lid was called the mercy seat. It was called that because they didn't get what they deserved. The sacrifice in some way had absorbed the sin, absorbed the punishment of the offender, Israel in this case, and bore God's judgment and death. That's why this beautiful temple and this great occasion of the ark being processed and paraded in comes with such gore. It's it's incredible when you think about it. Verse 5, that they sacrificed so many animals in that day that they actually lost count. So when we see then what they move into the temple, especially the ark, as we concentrate on the ark, as the text makes us concentrate on, we get to see the kind of person who's moving in. He's someone who's made a promise And someone who is so merciful to keep the relationship alive even when the other party had failed many times. Now, what does this mean for us? This was the old covenant. The Bible tells us that we are a new covenant people. And that's true. God has made a promise, though, to his new covenant people as well. He made it initially in in Jeremiah 31 through the prophet Jeremiah where he promised a new covenant where he would write the law not on stone to be placed in a box but in human minds and placed in their hearts. And once again what he said he would do was to seal it with the blood of a sacrifice except this time it would not be an animal, it would be a person. It would be his son. And fast forward a thousand years and there's Jesus sitting in an upper room holding a cup of red wine saying this 
cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And he did that in order to show us that he is God's promise to us. He is the sacrifice of atonement. So that each and every time we eat and drink of bread and wine at communion, we are examining ourselves, repenting of our sinfulness, putting our trust in the promise of his mercy to sorrowful sinners like us. And remembering with every piece of bread consumed and every drop drank that God is a promise keeper, faithful to his promises to forgive. Now that's what we know about God from what's carried in on moving day. But what about what happens when God himself moves in? Well, look with me at verse 8. It says, after the long procession, they placed the ark in the most holy place in the temple. And verse 10 says, when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now that last statement about the glory of the Lord filling the temple tells you that this cloud thing, this is no freak weather system. The temple does not have its own microclimate. The cloud is a visible sign of God's holy presence. In other words, God has moved in. Now, again, I want to say this is not God putting himself in a box. He can't be contained in physical terms, whether it's the ark or the temple. Solomon himself says in verse 27, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So, how does the cloud show us that God has moved in? I mean, in what sense is God moving in with his people? If he can't be contained in a temple, how can he be said to live there? That's what he said he would do. Well, this is what's called a theophany. A visible and a unique manifestation of the presence of God. This isn't what we know as his omnipresence, his everywhereness. No, this is what one author calls his absolutely unique, like nowhere else, personal presence. That's what a theophany is. And this isn't the first time he's appeared to his people in a cloud. Uh, he spoke to his people from the cloud in the past. That's how they know he's there. That's why it's so significant. Exodus provides the clearest example of this when he led the people by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Even on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, 20 and following, God is on the mountain in thick smoke, similar smoke to the kind that fills the temple on this dedication day. And God does that in order to communicate his presence. That's what the cloud tells us about God. It tells us that he is, on the one hand, it tells us that he is near. He's close by. He's moved in. He's so with his people in a way like he is with no one else anywhere else. But at the same time, the cloud shows that he is transcendent. You know, he's there, but you can't see him. This is God revealed, but God concealed all at the same time. It's like popping in to see your new neighbor and them speaking to you through the letterbox. It's just, it's a little bit of an anticlimax. You're not asked in for a cup of tea. You know, you don't get to see God's face in this scenario. 
And here's where we see something of the majesty of God in his, in his deity, in his incomprehensibility. And at the same time, the intimacy that we have with God as he accommodates himself to our capacity to understand him by means of a cloud. Communicating his presence to us in a way that we can grasp it. So the cloud both reveals and conceals. It shows that God is both approachable and unapproachable. Near, you can see his presence, yet transcendent, he is beyond the range of normal human experience. As he says elsewhere, no one may see me and live. Such is his holiness and his majesty. And how strangely anticlimactic, isn't it? How strangely anticlimactic that on the day that God moves in, the people are chased out. The priests actually can't conduct their ministry. They can't do it. Now, I'm not buying for a second that it was like thick fog. You know, they couldn't actually see what they were doing. I'm positive that they were overwhelmed with the presence of God. There is no way that they could go in there without dropping down dead. Their rejection is instructive in that sense. It doesn't change who God is to them, of course. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love them and doesn't want to be with them. It's instructive. It's just designed to remind them of who he is. And once more, as we see with all of these passages, they point forward to Jesus himself. These things are types and shadows of the one who is to come. And again, fast forward a thousand years, and we see God put his promise and his presence in the new and better temple, not made of bricks, but flesh and blood, Jesus himself. And his glory fills this eternal son. As we read, the one in whom fullness, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1 verse 3 even tells us that he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory. And there's one day in particular when three of his friends were taken up onto another mountainside and they saw a glimpse of that glory. It's in a story in the Gospels called the Transfiguration where they saw Jesus change like he, he was transfigured. He became like white, as bright as the sun. And all of a sudden they were just struck at the nearness and the transcendence of Jesus himself. Peter uh, with his foot-shaped mouth, just blurted out some stuff again. Oh, it's really good for us to be here. He thought he was going to die, really. It's really good for us to be here. I know what, let's build three little tents. No, great plan, Peter. No, God comes down in a what? In a what? A cloud. Revealing his presence, but concealing the overwhelming might of his majesty so that he could address Peter without Peter dying. And he says, this is my son. Listen to him. Why? Only he has the words of eternal life. God, from the glory of that cloud, reveals the glory of the Son of God himself. As 
supremely then, we will grasp what is knowable about this incomprehensible God by looking to Jesus, who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The one of whom John said, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace to cover all of our sin, truth to counter every lie that this world tells us, that there is no God. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, if you have not read one of the gospel accounts, the true stories of the life of Jesus Christ, please ask the person who brought you or someone after the service, say, would you read one of these books with me? Or can you give me one so that I can go away and read it for myself? And consider the nearness and yet the transcendence of the God-man, Jesus Christ, that you too might believe in him. Your life depends on it. Look to him. It's amazing what you can find out just from looking at what happens, from looking at what people carry into a house and what happens when that person moves in. We see God the promise keeper and God's revealed and yet concealed. But there's something else that we learn in here, and this is the second thing. What does this passage tell us about us, is a question we're asking. And this is the interesting thing, isn't it? When a, when a neighbor moves in, you, you expect it might have a little bit of an impact on you, but you don't really expect them to start underlining some particular conditions about the basis of your relationship with them. <laughs> and yet that's exactly what happens here. From all that 